On this episode of Mission Daily, we sat down with Henry Shuck, the co-founder and CEO of Zoom Info, formerly known as DiscoverOrg. When he was in school, Henry loved the law and he enjoyed the work, but he ultimately felt he was destined to create something more using his entrepreneurial spirit. Eventually, Henry started DiscoverOrg in 2007 at the age of 23 while still attending law school. And on this episode of the show, Albert and Henry linked up to discuss how he made the quick switch from law school to creating his own award-winning tech company. Plus, he discusses the rewards of working hard to meet your goals and the importance of listening to the business. Enjoy this episode. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back. Mission Daily. Today, special guest with us, CEO, founder, Zoom Info, Henry Shuck. This is very rare where we've had a guest on where one of us has been a customer the entire time. So just full transparency for everybody. It was used to be called DiscoverOrg. I used DiscoverOrg back in 2008. I believe, Henry, the company was founded around 2006 or seven. Yep, 2007. 2007. So I've used the product since 2008. I went to another company. We didn't need it. I went to another company, brought it there at Ad Shoppers, and then we know of your company today. And I would say any business that's out there that needs to prospect, which is all of you, <laughs> needs Zoom Info now. Henry, why don't you tell us exactly what Zoom Info does? So the most simple way to explain it is that we're a directory of businesses and people at those businesses, except our directory is incredibly deep around both of those things. And so when you look up a business inside of Zoom Info, you don't just get the name of the business and where they're located. You get all of their locations. You get what technologies they currently use. You get an org chart of the decision makers. You get what industries they're in, what products they're launching, what they're spending on in the coming months um, and then the coming year, who their new executives are, who the head of information security is for the little division that you forgot existed. So really deep information on companies that's constantly changing, right? Because companies are constantly changing and then really deep information on the people at those companies. And so who are the decision makers? What is their direct dial phone number? Uh, who do they report to? What are they responsible for? What sort of initiatives have they been involved with at the company so that when you're reaching out to a company, you're reaching out with the right message to the right person at the right time. So I'm going to take you back to 2008 because I think that we got to go back to the start. That was the pitch that one of your sales reps gave to me. Now, my first step being a skeptic is like, that's, there's no way you have all this accurately because prior to then, or if we say, especially at that time, lead products let's say we're full of inaccurate information. I would like 20 plus percent of emails would probably bounce. Yep. Maybe, yeah, maybe worse. They, now they told me that you guys were like 90 something percent accurate. I'm making that number up right now, but I can't remember exactly. It was a high number. 95%. At the time I said, that's BS. There's no way. Right. And I said, give me a, I want a sample. And so I asked for a sample and they gave me a sample of a random criteria I picked, which I was shocked that the guy could just pull data from. And it did work 100%. Like it was 100% accurate. So I was like, all right, I guess we got to buy this thing. <laughs> I would hope so. Well, like we kind of made our bread and butter on the idea that this information, information on people and their professions and companies in general is constantly changing. The only way to really add value to the sales and marketing process is to make sure all of that information is constantly up to date and accurate. Because, you know, 10 years ago, 
sending an email that bounced 20% would get you bad campaign results. Today, sending an email that bounces 20% gets your domain blacklisted, gets your CEO unable to send messages from the domain. It keeps you from communicating with your customers. The systems have just gotten so much smarter over the last 10 years that you can do real damage to the entire business by sending a list that just bounces 20%. 10 years ago, you might get away with that. It's just not the world we live in anymore. Let's do this. I want to go back to the original creation, what used to be Discover.org, now ZoomInfo again. So you're studying at law school. I read a little bit about yourself that you were working for a, some, like a similar type leads company, Yep. but you obviously decided to break away and do your own thing. What was the catalyst for that? And you're not a developer, at least it doesn't say you're I'm a developer. Not. Yep. So how did you go about that? Because you obviously saw technology was going to be the driver that was going to allow this to happen. Yeah. So first I was a stroke of luck. When I finished my first year in undergrad, I needed a job. And uh, I went on the, I went to, to undergrad at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I went on the job board just looking for any job that I could find. And I found this position at a company called iProfile. I didn't know what it did, but it paid $12 an hour. And I had racked up $2,500 in credit card debt after my first year. <laughs> and I just needed a job. And so I went in, I interviewed, I got offered the job on the spot. I went in, I didn't know what it was. I was really just waiting for the MGM grant to call me so I could go work there, um, <laughs> but needed something in the middle. So I took this job and it was me and the founder. And this is 2002. And he was selling annual software subscriptions to a database to technology companies. This is like pre-LinkedIn and then went into this subscription model, which was really new in, in 2000. And I worked there from 2002 to 2006. So between the ages of 18 to, you know, 22. And during those four years, I got a front row seat to growing a business because we grew it from about 300,000 in revenue to close to 5 million in revenue. That's a, that's saw, a lot. That's a big that's a lot in that period of time. Totally. <laughs> and it's kind of also like the fundamental stage of a business. So it wasn't like I came there at 5 million and things were already moving. I got to like watch the whole thing kind of like get built and, and build it with the founder. Uh, we got to 5 million in revenue, but it was still like 5 million in revenue and six employees. And so there wasn't really a career trajectory for me there. And it was still just kind of a lifestyle business that the founder wasn't really interested in creating a real business around. And so I said, look, this isn't going to be a, yeah. But for yes. 5 million and six employees is kicking off a lot of cash. It is kicking off a lot of cash. <laughs> and that is why, you know, he liked that structure and he wasn't yeah. worried about competitors and it was always designed to be a lifestyle business. And so I left and said, look, I want to do something different. I went to law school and kind of my first year in a friend that I had recruited to that business, which was called iProfile, called me and said, hey, we should start something that's like this. Uh, that doesn't have to compete head on, but look, there's obviously this great opportunity there and the business wasn't investing back into the business. We can build something where we're investing back in the business and trying to build something bigger. So we launched it after my, uh, right at the end of my first year in law school and had our first customer three months later. The company grew organically through 2014, where we bought up, brought on private equity investors. In 2015, we acquired iProfile, which was an interesting sort of full circle moment. Uh, and then we went on and acquired, did some M&A. We acquired a competitor of ours called Rain King in 2017. And then in February of this year, we acquired uh, ZoomInfo. 
and then merged Discover Org and Zoom Info together and took the Zoom Info name because although I came up with the name Discover Org, it kind of sucks as a name. <laughs> people, people were much more likely to mess Discover Org up than they were to get it right. It was like when someone got it right, I was like, oh, wow. They, they called it Discover Org. They didn't call it Discover.org or Discovery or Discover or Discovery.org. So it was kind of like a great opportunity to rebrand um, and take a new name out to market. So that's where we are today. We have 1,100 employees. 350 million in annual recurring revenue. The business is profitable and growing and we're providing this sort of core function to sales and marketing teams, which is my core job is to, if my core job is to go out and generate new business, then the foundational layer of being able to do that is to understand the companies that I need to sell to and the people at those companies who are going to make buying decisions about my products and services. And once I know those, then knowing the right time to reach out to those companies and reach out to those people becomes sort of the, the second most important layer. And so we're providing, uh, we're providing data that gives you the companies and the people. We're providing a software layer on top of that that lets you rank those companies and rank those people based on criteria that they're most uh, indicative of the next buyer of your product. We're integrating all of that to CRM and marketing automation tools. Yeah, uh, to the crowd that doesn't know what some of the things that you just said means it literally means one person without much time can look up a thousand plus accurate leads, flow them into a campaign, uh, and basically act as though they're, I don't know, 10 SDRs. Yep. Yep. It, that's what we used it for at least in the past. But, um, I want to take it back to though that beginning because this is what's really fascinating. So you saw an opportunity, right? Yep. But it doesn't sound like you had the technical skill. Did your, your co-founder have the technical skill? I knew what we needed to build, right? Cause I had just kind of watched it. So I knew I needed a product and, and so I needed data and then I needed a software layer on top of that product. And then I knew I needed customers. So I needed to know who my potential companies and people were. So we went out and we built the data. And actually when I was in high school, I worked on political campaigns and there was a guy who was around the political campaigns who did all the data and tech work. And I called him and said, Hey, can you build a wrapper around all of this data? Can you build a software package so that I can sell subscriptions to it? Uh, and he did kind of at the last minute, we had a, like the day we were going to launch, she put up a website the night before that incorporated all of our data. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then we kind of built on top of that system and look, if I could go back, I probably would have spent the six months that we were building the product, learning how to code and at least been like really kind of really prepared to handle engineering because I didn't know how to code. I still don't know how to code. And then I was consistently kind of trapped by having a third party developer who owned all of our code. And because the business was small, I didn't, I couldn't really afford to hire somebody full time. And that would have been the ideal way to do it. Just bring in a VP of engineering full time, give them some equity in the business and have us all work together. And I, it would, that would, alleviate the need for me to be, you know, in the code, but it was, it was, we used a third party that structure existed for like six years and it's pretty painful to innovate when your engineering team doesn't sit alongside you. Oh yeah. I've been there as well. When every time you want a 
a code update, it's like, oh, it's a change order. Plus you have to wait for whenever it's ready. They can do it, right? Whenever they can do it. And then they don't really understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. And so you end up with something that's sort of half-baked and it's a lot of back and forth. And then then you be, you become, like I became basically the person who could understand whether something was a really difficult ask or something was an easy ask. And so our customers would be like, or our employees would say, hey, it'd be really great if the platform could do blah, blah, blah. And I would go, oh, that's an easy one. We should do that. Let's go do that right now. Or that's a really complex one. Let me think about it as it relates to the prior, the other priorities. No, I know exactly what you're saying. I'm trying to understand like how your time was split though, because this is what's fascinating, right? So you're at law school. Yep. And you did very well in law school. I did well in law school. All right. Well, I know law school takes up a lot of time. So <laughs> you got you got this thing, uh, you got this software product you're working on. You got outsourced contractors. I mean, where's your money coming from? Like, cause you're spending some money definitely there. You're all your time is probably split between books and this. Like, how are you managing yourself at this time? Did you ever feel like you were going to give up or just take me back to your mindset at this moment? We founded the company. I decided, look, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. So I pushed all of my law school classes into the evenings. And so my law school class, and it didn't like people were taking law school classes that fit like what they wanted to do or who, prepared them for the bar exam. I took whatever classes could fill a schedule from 3.30 till 10 p.m. If it was available after 3.30, I took that uh, (laughs) law school course. And so I would wake up at 7 a.m. and I'd work until 3 and then I'd go to law school from 3.30 till literally 10. And then you know, I was engulfed in the work. So during law school classes, I was responding to emails and building uh, marketing campaigns and sending marketing campaigns and responding to customer emails. And that's kind of how it worked. I think I probably had like Fridays off. So Friday was like a full day of Discover Org Zoom info work. And I think the most, the time where I felt close to defeated was we launched the company in 07 and I have no money, but I put $25,000 on a credit card and my co-founder <laughs> put 25,000. Yeah, big bet. <laughs> my co-founder put $25,000 on a credit card and that was sort of our startup capital. And then like maybe the second month we launched the business or the third, I ran across this website of a company called Rainkin and I'd never heard of it before. And if you read the website, they were doing exactly what we were doing, except that it was founded by a serial entrepreneur who had just sold his business for like a hundred million dollars to a private equity firm and was basically doing it again and assembled a team of executives he had worked with in the past and everything just sounded better and looked better and was well funded. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my goodness, like this is the worst thing that could happen to us. Like, how are we going to compete in a world where these guys who are, you know, as well funded as they are, are going to be in every one of our deals. And I just, and I think at the time I just tried to pretend like it wasn't a big deal. And just kept telling myself, like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. You're going to be able to beat them. Like, you're going to strategize your way around them. And, and then I think we were just, a bit, like, over time, we were grittier. We were more dedicated to winning than they were. Like, we really wanted to win. And so we would figure out how they would sell against us. And then we'd pivot an entire story or the entire way we went to market to sort of compete against that motion of theirs. And they'd get caught up in it 
we would be like for six months that would work and they'd figure out how to rebut it. And then we'd figure out some other new way to go to market or to position our products and services. And that would get us another six months of a lead. We ended up acquiring a Rain King in 2017. And at the time we're about twice the size of them. And we kind of took off at some point in 2014 and really started taking market share. But the, the lesson there is, you know, number one, pick a big total addressable market. Like whatever pain point you're trying to solve, if it's a big addressable market, then it doesn't really matter if there's one or two or three other comp- competitors in there because you're going to do something that they don't, that you're going to do something better that they don't do. And you'll be able to highlight that and you're going to win deals along the way until you have the time and the money to sort of have a full fledged solution. But we were lucky enough to be in a really big market. And so we were able to attract customers, even though we had better funded alternatives around us. Yeah. I want to get back to what you just said there, like this concept of just better, right? So you kind of alluded to you're in a six month to like almost like a seesaw like battle where you're in the lead, then you fall behind. You're in the lead, then you fall behind. So how did you make sure your product and services were better? Like, was it a brand promise? Like, like example is, you know, Southwest built his business, obviously on low fare air, air yeah. uh, airfare, low airfare, right? Like they focused maniacally on it. What were you focused on maniacally to make sure that you had an advantage over your competitors? So I went in probably the, the 2010 or 2009, I met with one of our customers and he said, the thing that you guys have, Henry, that nobody else has is the direct dial phone number. Nobody has the direct dial phone number the way you guys do. So our customers who are sellers need a direct phone number to contact these buyers. And we had, we had been focused and you could put like quotes around the focused on direct phone numbers, but we never really viewed it as a true strategic advantage. So this was like on a Wednesday in Seattle. On a Thursday, I came home, came back to work and said, look, our focus needs to be direct dial phone numbers. We have 90 plus percent direct dial phone numbers. I'm going to track it every day. I'm going to look at every record that goes in. And look, when you're putting in records into our system, that means more than nine out of 10 have to have a phone number just for us to stay even at 90%. And so we just maniacally focused on the direct dial phone number. And every time we were in a competitive situation, we would go, we have 92% direct dial phone numbers. We have 93% direct dial phone numbers. You know, we're always over 90% direct dial phone numbers. And that was such a like, it was a visceral thing that our buyers understood. They knew why you needed direct phone numbers. And so when you would tell them, yeah, nine out of 10 times you pull up a record in our system, that's going to have a direct phone number attached to that. It was just like an objective truth that they could wrap their minds around. And so that really drove, that was one thing we were maniacally focused on. And the second was just quality. Like we put in, in, in every one of our contracts, we guarantee 95% accuracy and it didn't matter who else you were talking to. Nobody would, would put like their money where their mouth is with a guarantee like that. It's in our contract. It's in every single one of our contracts. And if somebody else is telling you that they have higher quality data than us, tell them to put their money where their mouth is. Put it in the contract then. Give a guarantee around it. Because I give a guarantee to every single one of my customers about the quality of our data because I recognize how important that is. 
I can remember back to it. That's the why, reason why we bought because your company, your rep, like I remember gave me a random, like, so I would say, for example, Hey, I want to find people who have this specific software product because we sold an ancillary software product against it. If yep. you tell me that you can pull a random, my sample, give me like 20, right. Of companies with this software that have between a hundred and 200 employees based in Kansas. Like I would just make a yep. city they're like, or state, they, they would just pull it and be like, there it is. And I was like, okay, that was fast. So I knew you didn't. Yep. So I got to ask, how did you get that? I, Cause I, I know exactly how you guys do it, but I still don't really understand. <laughs> yeah. How did you get that accurate? One, we were, everybody was at the point of entry into our system. All the data is a hundred percent accurate. So like we were using humans, so we built the, the company and today it's, it's fundamentally technology and systems and machine learning that drives the collection and maintenance of the data and then humans that deal with the anomalies. But what's, how we started was it was humans gathering the information, plugging it in in a, in a fully accurate way, and then we built systems on the back end to validate that data uh, every three months. So we would touch every record in the system at least once every three months. And so that meant we either made a call to it. And so we built actually software that would call into a company. It would listen to a voice message. It would store that voice message and it would call again three months later, record the voice message and just basically do a Shazam between the two files. Were they the <laughs> same? Good. Were they different? Go figure out if the phone number is wrong. And so we, and we sent emails to everybody in our database every three months. Um, and we actually sent them surveys. And so we'd say like, tell us what you're spending money on and what are you buying from a technology perspective and what does your technology stack look like? And so just the sending of those surveys gave us this amazing feedback mechanism because emails would bounce. And so we'd be able to capture those emails that bounced and we'd feed them back into the platform. And then over time, we built integrations into marketing automation systems where when our customers integrated, one of the things that they passed back to us was the bounced, uh, the bounced data and the email confirmation data. And so now we have hundreds of customers who every day pass us emails that bounced and emails that confirmed. And so we're able to use that exhaust data, kind of just the garbage data that's coming off of marketing automation systems to keep our data set cleansed at scale. So there's two things fundamentally that I'm surprised by is number one, the original way you guys did this was straight up calling into companies and asking them to verify yep. information. And so yep. it's mind boggling to me that people would answer. And then, then you had the survey data, which again, surprisingly, you're, you're saying people would answer it. They'll just say, yeah, I still work here. Or I'm not exactly sure what those surveys said. You don't have to say, but. So yeah, no, no. Our surveys would say like, hey, we're doing a survey on companies that are of your similar size. And we want to understand what your technology stack looks like in comparison to theirs and what sort of initiatives are coming up on the horizon for you. And then what we would do is after they would answer, we'd, we aggregate all of the data and then we send it back to everybody in an anonymized way. And so you could see like, oh, across my industry and the companies of my current size, this is what other CIOs are investing in. This is how other CIOs technology stacks look like. And you can get kind of like really interesting industry data. And we gave you a $15 gift certificate for filling out the survey. I think the combination of those two, those two things drove the response rates. And look, you send out a, a thousand surveys, you're not getting like 700 back or 500 <laughs> or 300. You're really getting back, like call it, you send a thousand out. It's a good day if you get 40 back. 
or 50 back. But those 50 that you get back give you really detailed information about a company's investments and infrastructure. And so you just kind of get out of the mindset of like, hey, this thing needs to be fully scalable. And then you just realize like every nugget of information you're able to pull out of those surveys is going to tr provide tremendous value to sellers and marketers. And so it's okay that it only returns 50 out of a thousand because those 50 are insanely valuable to our customers. So you, you're at this position now where, you know, your company based on, you know, like whether you want to call it network effects or so, yep. it's really hard to usurp you now because in order for a competitor to be in your space, they have to have at least equal data plus better pricing. Maybe, I don't know. They'd have to have at least equal data because that's exactly what people are paying for the value on it. Yep. They'd have to have equal data. It'd have to be integrated into everybody's CRM and marketing automation systems. They'd have to have this network effect of customers providing that exhaust data that lets you cleanse the data at scale. And so your integrations have to be really good. And then you'd have to, like we have, uh, we have a 170 person engineering team that yeah. is constantly innovating against these systems that gather and deliver the data. And so the system is, the data is constantly getting better. Um, the systems are constantly getting smarter. And so every day that goes by, our data is a little bit better than the day before. So you're a very ultra, I would call you an ultra strategic CEO. You've made multiple acquisitions. Uh, you obviously are seeing the forefront of your industry. It feels like you've climbed to the top of the mountain, but I'm guessing you don't actually feel like you're there yet. No. And I don't think, um, <laughs> yeah, not at all. I don't think I'll ever feel like I'm there. And I think for the most part, I don't think any company that's growing doesn't feel like they've reached the pinnacle of what they're doing. I think like the minute you start thinking, Hey, I've made it. Uh, that's it. Like just, you should just leave that day. Like that should be your dad, your last day at work. Um, because it's all downhill from there. And I think every day we come in going like, Oh my God, there are all of these problems across the pane of glass of our, of our business. And which ones are we going to solve first? And as soon as we solve those things, you know, some other problem comes up and some other problem, some other problem. So we're always going to be like solving things to make the product better, to strengthen our market position, to make our employees happier. So let's talk about the, the, the growth side of things, right? So, you know, you got, you, you built your chops, as you said, at uh, the first company, which had ultimately, I profile, I believe six employees. Yeah. You start with your partner, you got some outsourced contractors, but you're not, you've never really actually managed people that not to any scale, I would say. How did you develop those skills? I mean, cause obviously no one wakes up one day with, a, you know, knowing how to manage a thousand people unless you've done it. Right. And so you've, you've had to learn on along the way. Yes, for sure. So I will say when I was in undergrad, I was a student body president of UNLV for a year, which, uh, I think at some schools is kind of a hokey thing to do, but at UNLV, that meant I managed a $2.1 million budget and I had wow. 20 employees and I was <laughs> 21. And, and I actually, I ran as this kind of an outsider, an outsider. And so my whole plan was like, I'm going to tear this place apart when I come in. And we're going to just run student government like a business. And it's going to feel very different than it does today where it's run as like a student club. And so I had this year of kind of operating, of operating a $2.1 million business on my own where I was the, I was the decision maker. I could decide what we spent on. I decided 
who we hired and who we fired and who ran the different programs and what we brought in. So I had this great year of learning there. And then that just gave me the conf- my, gave me confidence because we accomplished everything we set out to accomplish. I was like authentic to myself during that year. I, I, was, I, was, I ran student government the way that I always imagined I would run a business. And so then when we took, when we started, uh, when we started Discover Org, it was sort of like, can I carry that through? And so I did. And the business gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And I think the thing that I learned along the way is that you kind of always need to listen to the business. The business is going to tell you sort of where you should be spending your time, what you should be focused on. The business is going to tell you where your employees are falling short or where you need, you have talent challenges, where you need to upgrade talent and bring in new people. It's just a matter of whether you're going to listen to it or not. And there are lots of times where I didn't, right? I, I, it's like the business was telling me something and I just rationalized the reasons for its failure. Oh, it's hard. Marketing's, you know, our marketing department struggled between 2015 and 2016. And I should have made a bunch of changes during that time. But instead of listening to the business, I just made a bunch of excuses for it. And that's just like, it's just not healthy. And you know the right answers. And the business is telling you a story. And it's just up to you to listen to it. And if you want to listen to it and rationalize it and put it, you know, leave it as scar tissue, then it's always going to be sort of an ugly part of the business. But if you want to like listen to the business, have it tell you like, hey, Henry, you can't be in the weeds on these five things anymore because now there's a thousand employees. And so you need to be more high level, more, more strategic, more thinking 12 to 24 months out. The business wasn't telling me that when we were 500 employees, but it was telling me that when I was a thousand. And so listening to that and making sure that you're changing who you are and how you run the business based on how the business is performing and what it's telling you, I think is really, really important. I was going to tell you one other thing about starting the business. I almost forgot. And I think this is just great advice for anybody trying to figure out what, what fits for them. When I was in law school, and I did well in law school, but when I was in law school, I worked really, 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 really hard. Like, and it was painful work too, like writing briefs or doing the assignments for law school. It always felt like a grind for me. And I worked really hard. And for every, like, every ounce of effort I put in, I got like a little bit out of the other side. And so I'd have to work way harder than those around me to be at a, at, at a, at their own level. And so people also made it look easy. It's like they came in, they wrote their briefs that looked really simple. And I was like, you know, killing myself every night trying to, to, to be of the same quality. And then I, and I noticed the same thing kind of in sports, like in golf, I, I tried to golf for years. I was, I'm awful at golf. I work I <laughs> really, really hard. Like I try to practice and watch videos. I never get better at golf. And then the people around me are like making it look easy. And I realized at Discover Org, I would put in, a, I'd work really, really hard, but the rewards that I would get for that effort were always outsized compared to that effort. So it was like the opposite of law school where I would work really hard and get a little bit out with discover org. I would work really hard and I'd get a lot out of it. That's like a better natural feedback loop, right? You're like, you're it's, it's telling you that you're good at your decisions are good. You're and you're just, your talents are lining up with the profession you chose. 
and people, you know, these quotes that are like, you know, find the work you love and you'll never work a day in your life kind of thing. Yeah. Like that's not really true. It's just like, you'll be rewarded more for that work. And when you're like rewarded constantly for the amount of effort and work that you put in work doesn't really feel like work. Like I can work, I can work 16 hours at zoom info every day. And it doesn't really feel like work. And I don't work 16 hours a day, but if I worked a 16 hour day, that wouldn't, it doesn't ever hurt me. I wake up in the morning, I jump on, I start doing work. I work all day and I'm never like, Oh, I never, I've never felt a day at work the same way I felt any day at law school. <laughs> and I think that's kind of how, you know, you're doing the right thing. And I played water polo in high school. It was the same thing for every ounce of energy I put into water polo. I was immediately rewarded by being much, much better at water polo than I was before that effort. And it's like golf was the exact opposite of that. And so it's like, take time to figure out where your talents line up with your profession because it'll make like your entire career much less painful than it would have to be. So I'm curious, like, you know, hearing about your story, about the work effort, you know, it sounds obviously very clear that you have a ton of passion for what you do. You know, where, where, what do you think happens next, the next 10 years for Zoom Info? You know, one of the things I was thinking of when you were describing, this is what I casually observed when I was a customer. I was like, man, I almost feel like you could make stock bets because you, you know where people are moving in industries. You know which headcounts are growing. You know which technologies are becoming more prevalent. You know what I mean? Like a lot of yep. companies now IPO, like you could literally be the guy that says, hey, I know that this software product is like starting to spread like wildfire. I know you'll stay in the lead info place, but do you think that will, will Zoom info start expanding into other categories? Yeah, absolutely. Like how, does the, how does the business change from here? I mean, one really interesting thing is that we are seeing more unique use cases happen with our, with our product. So the, the one that you highlight here, hedge funds uh, are using our data for exactly that. So they're pulling all the data out and putting it into their models. And that's able to sort of help them predict which stocks to buy, which stocks to short. And that is a use case, not one we've spent enough time on, but there are a couple who figure that out. Talent acquisition and recruiters are becoming a bigger and bigger part of our business. And really because they've realized that acquiring the next professional in your business feels very similar to acquiring your next customer. It requires multiple touch points. It requires multiple meetings. It requires convincing and persuasion. You have to build a pipeline the feeling of how of running a well-run talent acquisition department is very similar to running a sales department. And it has the same inputs, right? People, specific titles, specific companies, specific sizes, specific technologies that they may use. And so we're seeing recruiting and talent acquisition become a bigger, a bigger part of our focus in our business. And then barely scratching the service surface in the enterprise. And what we're realizing is, look, companies went out and they spent a bunch of money on CRM and marketing automation tools and sales automation tools. And then they filled it with just whatever data they had around. And then they told sales reps like, yeah, put all your information inside of <laughs> Salesforce. And they did, right? They were honest about yeah. it, and put their information in. And then they didn't create any mechanism to keep that information up to date to put insights around it to add phone numbers and emails and tell you when your contacts leave. And that creates a really big issue for sellers and marketers. But I come into my CRM and all I have is a bunch of dated information. I don't want to come into my CRM anymore. And so this major issue has gotten like more and more 
uh, obvious to companies and especially to enterprises. And so we barely scratched the surface on the enterprise opportunity. We have about 27% of the Fortune uh, 500 are clients of ours, but some in very small ways, some in very big ways. And so we have an opportunity to expand into that other 73%, but also expand our footprint across the, that 27%. We've historically been not an enterprise sales or enterprise focused company. And so that's a, that's a nice tailwind for us. And then the other cool thing that we find happening is, and we see this like really in the Midwest more than anything else, is traditionally kind of call it old school shoe leather type companies are realizing like not real realizing because their new VPs and directors of sales are, are in their thirties and grew up in a digital world. And they're coming into these positions where they run, they run sales for an HVAC company in the middle. And they go, wait, the way we go to market today is to drive around the city and write <laughs> down who's in different buildings like that. That just doesn't in, in, in a 30 year old's point of view, that just doesn't make sense as an effective or an efficient way to sell a product or service because they recognize look, this data is somewhere who has it and how can I use it to make this whole thing easier and less painful for everybody. So you see the Midwest, like logistics companies, manufacturing companies sort of waking up and going, Oh, like we need a new way to go to market and we can't do it in the traditional sort of old school shoe leather way. And so how do we change that? So we have these cool tailwinds around big companies realizing the bet on CRM was valuable but is not going as well as planned because of the data and the insights in their systems. And then you have this new crop of companies going, oh, we need to digitally transform the way we go to market. And how do we do that? Oh, we need data on the types of people and the companies that we should be selling to. We really sit at the intersection of those two things. I guess, how do you go about recruiting this mindset of taking, let's say a, I would say from the outside world, maybe it's not a sexy business, right? Because like, I think- totally. As, totally. a, as, a, as a customer of leads, I've been bombarded with people that say they have leads and I'm just like, I don't believe you. <laughs> right? Yeah. I told, I told a guy on my board a couple of weeks ago, I go, look, I have, we have somehow taken a business that sells business to business data and made that like the coolest thing possible for a bunch of 25 to 35 year olds who come in every day and they sell and they renew this product and like that world who, you know, I'm in, we're, we're a big part of our business is in Vancouver, Washington, uh, which is a suburb of Portland. So I'm competing with Nike and Adidas and Under Armour for talent, for talent. And I sell data that sales reps use to go to market. And the, the level of energy and passion across the sales floor or the marketing floor is really phenomenal to watch. And it's because they actually, they're getting an opportunity today at this company to do so much more than they would at a Fortune 500 company where you would go in and you'd be a paper pusher for, you know, God knows how long. Yeah. Here, they're getting on the opportunity to, to, uh, to sell to CEOs and VPs of sales and VPs of marketing. My VP of sales uh, started, at, started at the company. Uh, it was his first job out of college and he, he had been a caddy 
before. My, my senior VP of revenue was a poker player before he came and worked here. My chief revenue officer for one of our products, Never Bounce, came here from, also was a, a, a golf caddy and came, worked here, and moved up through the ranks. And so I think people here are excited about the professional opportunity that they get. They're excited about being able to be six months into their job and interfacing with senior executives at companies. And I think as long as the business is growing and finding new opportunities, that it's always going to feel that exciting for them, regardless of what the underlying product is. I mean, look, Facebook sells ads. That's their business. But there's such a like, you know, aura around working for Facebook. And it's like, it's just an, it's an ad business, but don't get, you know, I think it's easy to get sucked in to companies that look sexy on the outside. And then on the inside, they're just kind of like every other company. And I think we look less sexy on the outside, but on the inside, we're very different than every other company. I worked for a guy, he liked to oversimplify things too. And he's like, you know, sub, like if you'd said, Hey, Subway's a great operation. He's like, he would say something like, they just sell sandwiches. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. But, but all right. So you got a lot of passion. You fired up. I mean, you're talking about all your other team members. It sounds like they all have like sports and leisures or like a lot of their backgrounds. Is that, is that who you are? Like outside of work? Who are you outside of work? Do you know you a family uh, man or are you a sport? I know you don't golf. Uh, you don't like I that. I do not golf. Yes, I do not <laughs> golf. I am. Um, so I have a three-year-old, a three and a half year old. Congratulations. And Thank you. It's very awesome. Although the month she was born was the literal worst month in our company's history. (laughs) So that's a different story. But now she's awesome and it's great. Um, So I spend time every, obviously every day uh, that I, every day that I'm in town, I spend time with her. And just from a work-life balance perspective, one of the ways that I I have work-life balance is I've made a rule that if, if I am in town, then I will see my daughter in the morning. I'll play with her in the morning and I'll be home early enough to play with her for at least a couple hours at the end of the day as well. And it doesn't matter. I won't do a I won't do like a happy hour or a dinner or an early breakfast. That'll kill those opportunities. If I'm in town, I I have time with her before and I have time with her after. Cause I also recognize like my schedule is going to blow up. I'm going to have to travel around on different days and I can't, I'm not going to, win those days, but I'm going to win the days that I have control over. I work out every day. It kind of keeps my head clear. And so I'll do something physical every day. So whether that's running or biking or uh, something at the gym, and then, and then I spend the rest of the time I have, I spend with my wife or basically sleeping. Um, (laughs) And so it's really like my work, my family and me, and me is like sleeping and the gym. And everything outside of that is hard to sneak in. Listen, I think people have been watching Iron Man too much because we get asked all the time, like, what are all these CEOs like that you interview? And like, I mean, they go to work, they hang out with their families, they enjoy quiet time, they yep. hit the gym. Like they don't, they're not like Iron Man. They're not like going to cocktail parties all day long. You I know, am not. <laughs> doing whatever it is that is. But uh, dude, that's it would awesome. Be, it would be very hard to do that and also like prioritize work and family. <laughs> Very cool. Any words of wisdom for our audience? So just to give you a framework, our audience tends to be, we got like a interesting split on one side. We have C-levels and directors and VPs of companies that are trying to, you know, they're curious about what other companies are doing. I hear the words of wisdom of founders. 
And then on the other side, we have people that are probably, let's say, new to the workforce, right? They might be starting out their company for the first time. So we have a nice dichotomy, but most people are looking for nuggets of wisdom. I didn't know if you had any you'd like to share. So look, I would say a couple things. One, if on the founder or the CEO side, something is wrong in your business, don't be embarrassed about it. Just go fix it. All of these things are solvable. I spent the first six years of my career at Discover Org being embarrassed about the things that weren't going well. And so I wouldn't talk about them. I'd feel bad about them. There were like dark marks against my ability. And I realized sort of later that every business has these problems. And so my job is to just go fix them. Be okay with the things that are broken and be focused on fixing them. And so that would be my founder advice. And to the sort of the new professionals, I would say, try to find that fit that I talked about earlier, where the effort that you're putting in is truly being rewarded by the output that you're getting from that effort and look for that look for that to tie together really well in your professional career because when it does work doesn't feel like work your opportunities opportunities serve themselves up for you and you'll be a lot happier in what you do every day and so look for look for that match and when you find it i think everything becomes a lot easier awesome advice henry thanks for joining us today on mission daily thanks albert thank you very much Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.